Did you know 90% of top performers have a high emotional intelligence and a higher than average annual income? As one of the most highly valued skill sets, emotional intelligence or EI is what distinguishes outstanding leaders. Deepen your EI skills today with the Daniel Goleman Emotional Intelligence course, a 12-week online course to develop your inner capacity, become a stellar leader, and build high-performance teams. Save your seat and $50 with the coupon code PODCAST. Learn more at courses.keystepmedia.com. That's courses.key stepmedia.com. Don't forget to enter coupon code PODCAST at checkout for $50 off your registration. My name is Elizabeth Solomon, and you are listening to First Person Plural, Emotional Intelligence and Beyond. Today, we will be talking about the very foundation of emotional intelligence, self-awareness. There are many ways throughout our lifetime that we cultivate self-awareness, and the truth is, We all have blind spots. Today's story is about a group of siblings who share a similar blind spot, and that is their sperm donor. This is the story of a group of biological siblings who found each other in adulthood long after their identities and sense of self had already become established. It's a story about how their self-awareness expanded being in one another's presence, what they came to understand about themselves that they could only understand in the context of knowing one another and the donor that they came from. Katie Silver was born to a lesbian couple in the 80s This is a time when it was really hard for same-sex couples to find a sperm donor. In fact, homosexuality had only recently come out of the DSM as a psychological disorder. Katie's mothers found a doctor willing to inseminate them, but Katie grew up knowing nothing about her donor until she was contacted through 23andMe by, well, her biological sister. My understanding was that it was a sperm donor and they knew that they were donating to a lesbian couple and that he didn't want to be involved in our lives and they didn't know his identity. So I just had always thought I would never find out who he was. And then when Laura contacted me via 23andMe saying we share a surprising amount of DNA. So, uh, you know, when she presented, hey... Are you interested in meeting someone or talking to someone you may be related to? I was like, yeah. And I didn't really expect to get anything out of it or feel any more complete. But I really wanted to know more about the people I'm related to by DNA. And then finding that this whole group of us 
surprisingly did make me feel like a part of something. And I have like a sense of pride. It's interesting in some of the, in the people that I'm related to, it's fun to know what they're doing and um, have such a sense of fondness, even though some of them I really don't even know very well. I met these siblings through my partner, Gwen Bass. Gwen and I have been together for six years, and it was about two years into our relationship that she found this large collection of biological siblings. As someone who's an only child, it was really poignant to watch Gwen come to know her biological sisters and one brother. Things that she thought that she understood about herself or knew about herself started to shift and change. Questions that she had grown up with. Who are your parents? Where do you come from? What's your medical history? They started to be answered. And for me, it was an interesting look at what's nature and what's nurture. Hi, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. This is my first time facilitating a podcast interview with this many people. So I'm just going to put that on the table because (laughs) it's going to be interesting to see how it goes. We're going to do our best here. I'm going to ask some really simple questions. So I'm just going to do this popcorn style. So just again, your name, how old you are, where you reside currently, and where you grew up. Gwen, why don't you kick us off? My name is Gwen. I am 40 years old. I was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I live in Massachusetts. Am I like passing it to someone? Go for it. Okay. Liz K, you're next on my list. I had to think a minute about my age. I think I'm 37. So at Liz Caselitz, I'm 37. I currently live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I grew up in Michigan. I'll go because I'm also 37. (laughs) I'm Liz Messberg. 37. I was born in Ann Arbor, but I grew up in the Bay Area and I'm currently in Portland, Oregon. Okay, I'll go. Hi, everyone. My name is Laura Khalil. I'm 42. I am based in Metro Detroit and I grew up in Metro Detroit and I will popcorn to Sean. I am the youngest of the group here. My name is Sean Marie Calvez. I'm 36 years old, young, and I was raised in Novi, Michigan, and currently reside in Northville, Michigan. So let's just start by orienting our listeners. When did you all learn about each other? And I know that answer is going to be a little bit different for each of you. And Gwen, I'm going to kick it to you again, just to start us off. Okay. I think I was like a little later to the party than some of you. I, my parents had, were in touch with another one of our siblings and sent me a DNA test that I like failed to get results from multiple times. So I like did multiple rounds of trying to get through the ancestry thing. But in the process of doing that, had heard that there was this group of people who had all been inseminated in Dr. Kendler's office and did some Facebook stalking of all of you and was like, there's kind of a resemblance. And so once I got my results, it was clear that like I was also a member of the group. And I actually remember I was in an airport in Baltimore and I was just coming back from a conference and Ann Lynn and I had just connected on, I don't know, Ancestry. And I remember her being like, hey, do you want to have contact with these people? And just like feeling that conflict of like, I've already figured out who I am and like what my life is about. And maybe like they all look really cool and interesting, but like maybe just seeing their pictures is enough. Like maybe I don't 
actually need to like get in touch. Um, so I think that for me was like kind of an interesting pivotal point. And ultimately, obviously, I decided to do and you all were gracious enough to communicate on WhatsApp because I was like the Android user in the group. So thank you for that. Anyway, so that's my memory of it. Liz, um, how about you? When did you find out about all of these siblings that you had and where were you and what were some of the first thoughts that went through your head? So I had been told my whole life that there was likely some siblings out there. Something that Dr. Taylor had said to my mom along the lines of all of the donors that he used were chosen because they had already had healthy babies. So I knew that there was a really good chance that at some point, if I had taken 23andMe or Ancestry, that I was going to find somebody. And I figured there was a decent chance it was going to be somebody in the same group of families that my mom was affiliated with in Ann Arbor. So I finally took 23andMe, I think it was 2017 or 2018. And the first person I matched with was Anlin. And I was like, all right, well, I recognize that name. That's not a surprise. And then I saw Laura's name. And I thought, I don't know a Laura Kay. So that's somebody new. And I just processed that moment for a little bit. I guess I was initially shocked that Ann Lynn and I were related because I feel like we look so different. But I was just like, wow, that's really wild. And genetics are interesting. You know, I feel like there are all kinds of archetypes within our siblings. Like Gwen and Katie McKee look like twins to me. Liz Kay and I look really similar. Laura looks like kind of both archetypes. Sean is probably a Liz K. Liz is. We all have these similarities. So once I saw Laura's name and I processed, I think I reached out to her and I was like, hey, it looks like we're related. It looks like we're sisters. And I think that was news to her. She had already connected with Anlin and I think that was the first explosion. And then I came in and knocked down some more walls. And as she's processing the fact that she has two half-sisters, I said, hey, there's probably going to be a bunch more of us. Just reading how this is going, you should know that there's probably more of us out there, that this isn't isolated. So I had no idea exactly how many of us there was going to end up being, but that was a process. And then I think for a while, people were trickling in. It was like once a month, a new sibling would pop up. And I can't remember who was after Laura for me, if that was Gwen or Liz or Sean. But as soon as I saw Gwen's name, it peaked something. So I think Gwen was the baby that my mom had met in Ann Arbor that connected her to Dr. Taylor. So if my mom hadn't met baby Gwen, she would never have known that was an option for her. I knew there was like a Gwen out there. So... I, I hadn't known Gwen as part of that group. She had moved to Massachusetts, but that sort of vibed with my experience. So That's amazing. Gwen was like the baby Gwen was the <laughs> an initiating force. My mom, said, Gwen, my mom said she was perfect. She was like, I wanted to meet this baby because I knew she was a donor baby and she came out of a lesbian. And she's like, I had to put eyeballs on her, make sure she had 10 fingers, 10 toes. And she's baby Gwen was the most beautiful baby I've ever seen. And that sealed the deal. <laughs> Thanks, Gwen. I kind of owe you my life. <laughs> oh 
Liz Kay, I'm going to pass it over to you. Just tell us a little bit about when you found out you had so many siblings, where you were, what that first point of contact was like. I might start a little bit earlier because I feel like my story is slightly different from a lot of you and that my mom actually passed away when I was one. So I was raised by my aunt and uncle who became my parents, but I was raised outside of Ann Arbor and then very quickly disconnected from the initial group. Um, So I did not give a lot of thought to this side of my life at all. I grew up with a mom and a dad adopted. And I don't know, I just really didn't spend a lot of time thinking about my donor and my origins. So I initially did 23andMe because I have dark hair and olive skin and my mom's side is Scandinavian. So everybody has very white skin and very light hair. And I just wanted to know what those origins were for me. And I thought in the back of my head, I wonder if maybe there might be a sibling out there or something, but I didn't really think much about it. So then when I did 23andMe and the first connection that popped up was someone also named Liz, born the same year as me, from the same town as me, with a very similar story to me, that was a real holy shit moment of my life. Maybe the biggest holy shit moment. And at first I was, oh my God, like, what am I going to do with this? I just need a minute. And then I was like, I don't need a minute. I need to know everything (laughs) like right now. So I dove in pretty quickly. I think for me, not having any first degree relatives growing up, I've never had anybody that looks like me. Like growing up with my cousins and my aunts, uncles, I nobody looks like me. So that was a real shock, the, the physical similarities. And then all the personality similarities to follow were also really interesting. What was that thought that was going through your head when you said, I need a minute, and then you said, actually, I need to dive right in? It's, it's a real disruption to, to what you know and what your life has always been to think, wow, there's this whole other thing that I had not really spent much time thinking about. So that for me, it was just a needing to take a step back, think about my life and what it was and think about it if I had the space and bandwidth to dive into this whole other aspect, but I had to. (laughs) I just realized I really wanted to know who these people are. And my curiosity was much stronger than my kind of apprehension. Thank you. Sean, will you share with us your discovery of your siblings? Yeah, let's see. I think it goes back to 2016. I had taken a DNA test. My mom's sister is an ancestry alcoholic, I guess. She is obsessed with building our family tree, even if we're not really related to some people. So like she's always on ancestry.com, like always pulling stuff together. And my mom is the account holder. And so I think back in like 2014, my mom bought my whole family, the DNA test kits, and I took it back in 2014 and then didn't have a direct match with Dana Lieberman until 2016. And it was right around like 4th of July. My aunt said to me, hey, somebody messaged you on Ancestry and there's a picture of her and she looks just like you. And it didn't say sibling, but it says like close relative. So I responded back to Dana and her message and told her my story about how I knew I was artificially inseminated. I grew up in the Metro Detroit area and it looks like we're really close 
siblings. She was only a month younger than me. Um, and so it was very clear, like when you dig into the DNA results and everything like that, that we were definitely siblings. I had shared more DNA with her than I did my aunt on my mom's side. And I met her in 2018, I believe. I flew out to LA and met her and it was somewhat surreal. I knew my whole life that I was artificially inseminated. So it wasn't a shock to me that there were other siblings out there, but just the closest in age, growing up close in proximity. She went to Michigan State and we had a mutual friend. That was very bizarre feeling. And then I want to say it was a couple years later, my sister Dana matched with Laura on 23andMe. And then I took the test for 23andMe and then Laura was a connecting piece to all of the other girls. The whole thing is very fascinating. I was raised an only child and just didn't really have any expectations about having half siblings, but it has been a very fun, interesting, and like you learn more about yourself through these other siblings that like our love of Cracklin Opran and like weird stuff and like the way that I talk, I've heard is similar to the way that Liz Mesberg talks. And it's like, we weren't raised around each other, but we have the same inflection in our voice. And so that, and also having just like a group that you can confide in and they went through maybe not a similar experience, um, have that same dialogue that you can converse with them. That is something that was truly special for me because I went my whole life not being honest about who I was to people outside of my household. And it took me a long time to really accept who I was. And then once I did that and then found all of these siblings, it was like more reassurance that like, this is the way God has meant for my life to be. And it all made sense at that point. So it's been great. Thank you. Laura, you are, I, I keep seeing you as the hub based on what everyone else has shared as a major connection point for all of the siblings. And I just love to hear your story of well, how you found out. I am the big sister. I take my role very seriously. <laughs> um, so I am the only sibling that to date, there could be others that appear, but to date, I'm the only one who didn't know that their parents had used a sperm donor. And I'm, I grew up with a dad who I thought was my dad. He is my dad, but not my biological father. So I did 23andMe actually in 2013 because I'd always been very curious about my ancestry, not actually relatives, but more my heritage because I grew up in a Middle Eastern community. And for those who are looking at a photo of me, I am extremely white orders of magnitude paler than both of my parents. And so I always found that really strange that I never looked like anyone on my dad's side. And people would always say, oh, you look like your mom. So anyway, I did 23 in me in 2013. And the results at that point were still pretty inaccurate, like in terms of ethnicity. So they had actually classified me as Italian. And they they didn't even pick up any of them, my Middle Eastern heritage from my mom's side. So I was like, oh, this thing is bullshit. They don't even understand, like, 
they didn't, they missed that entirely. So I just dismissed it, but I would get these emails and they would be like, oh, you have more relatives. And I would go and look at the relative finder and I would see some Middle Eastern last names. And then I would see like all these like American or Western last names that really, I was like, who are these people? Like, this is totally off. And then in 2018, it was in the spring of 2018, I received a message from someone on 23andMe. And it just said, hey, Laura, we share a lot of DNA. Do you want to talk? And that was a message from Amrin, who is the first half-sister that I discovered. And it was, like, really upsetting. I mean, you know, too, it's, like, we're even really hard reliving. The shock. Yes, it was really tough to think. Your family is, you think you know where you're from. You think you know who your parents are. And it's like the bottom just falls out of the floor. And listening to everyone talk right now has actually been like bringing me back to that time and remembering how upsetting it was. I didn't understand how Amlin is play for a thick lead. And so, like, I was really confused. And I kept thinking, oh, my God, my dad must have had an affair, which is, like, really upsetting to even just consider. And then she said they used a sperm donor. And I was like, my dad was a sperm donor? <laughs> like, trying to figure out, like, how my dad had this kid. And then eventually realized, oh, that's why I don't look like my dad. It took me a minute to get to that point. And when I met or when I learned of Amlin, I was kind of like, obviously my parents didn't want me to know. And so I didn't want to talk about it with them. And in fact, I had a really hard time talking about it with anyone. And I remember I just thought, okay, we're just like, just we're not going to address this. We're not going to deal with this. And then it was a day before my birthday, I think, or one or two days before my birthday, my 38th birthday, when Liz popped up. And I remember so clearly I was in like a Meyer, which is one of our big grocery stores here. And I got this message and I was like, oh my, there's another one. And I was like, I just had a complete breakdown in the store. I just I thought something that maybe was like fluke now had like a pattern. But it was really within the course of that year of 2018, I think, where we all found one another. Um, but it was very, as you can probably hear and tell, it was very hard for me. It was almost like an existential identity crisis. But it's also been a great gift to meet these amazing women and man. We do have a brother. We can't forget about him. But to meet them and to really feel, honestly, blessed with having a new family growing up as an only child. But it didn't come easily. I was very, I will say with Anlin, when I discovered her, I was very suspicious. I wondered what she wanted from me. I remember that feeling very clearly, thinking, what does this woman want from me? Does she want money? Does she like, what does she want? And yeah, it took a minute. It took a minute, but ultimately it's been pretty cool. Thank you so much.
And it brings up such a critical piece, which is the stories that were told about ourselves, either by our families of origin or by the world at large and the systems we live in, how deeply they shape our identity and that in any way that we discover those stories are untrue, how rattling and shaking that can be. And it, some of you have touched on this, but I want to ask the question again of what was the story that you were told growing up about where you came from? And I'll just invite anyone to chime in. I, can I just, I, I don't, I don't need to be the person who always goes first um, when we do this, but I just was thinking as you were talking, Laura, and as you were talking to Liz, okay? Like, and actually as you were talking, Sean, and as you were talking with it, like, there is this really, really weird thing. When you've organized every fiber of your identity into, like, this, like, neat stack, and we were all older when we found each other, so it's not like we were, like, adolescents and we didn't know who we were. We like many of us have families, had significant relationships or were in them. We're like established professionals. And to go from being like, oh, this is who I am. This is the story I'm going to tell the world about who I am. These are all the places where I've maybe had to hide aspects of my identity because of the way that I was raised and like the people I was raised by and what I did or didn't know about my donor. Like I've fit it all into a box. Like I'm standing on it. I know how this works. I know who I am. And then to have that moment, Liz K, like you were saying, oh, wait, okay, like we're pulling out a Jenga piece and I'm not really sure what's going to happen. Like, how is everything going to be reorganized? And I think the process that you're articulating where like, while my experience was different, I can really relate to that feeling of like, oh, every, you know, I didn't even consider that there would be siblings. That wasn't a thing in my mind. There was like this, and, and to like answer your question, there was this donor that like my parents in, had told me had been like curated to be this like athletic Jewish doctor that that's what they ordered that's what they thought they got and I just was like an athlete my mom wasn't I was like darker skin than she was I was like there were all these things about me that I was like okay yeah that lines up okay totally yep Jewish doctor great okay and I'll just figure out how to use that story at different times in my life when I need to hide the fact that my parents are gay like I'll be like oh yeah my Jewish doctor dad yeah like he exists somewhere out there like I will just rely on that story and at other times I like you were like yeah I don't know and there is like a piece I think about you Liz Kat like the amount of unknown that you lived with anyway by being raised by your non-biological parents and there is a level of like not knowing that even when you don't know like just not knowing the donor I felt like okay like you have to be okay with the not knowing and so like I was working with what I had I made sense of what I didn't know and I was like this is how it's gonna go and so I just feel like while we all experience that in different ways, like so much of what you said, each of you, like really resonates in terms of like my own experience of all of it. Yeah, because as I had said, like my, when I was very little, you know, going into kindergarten and it's Father's Day. Oh, we're going to all make a card or we're going to do this craft for dads. And I would be going, I don't have a dad. And so then my mom explained to me at a very young age, you do have a dad it's impossible for you to not have a dad, but he's just not in your life the way that other dads are in their other kids' lives. And that's okay, but we want to be cautious about who we tell because of the current climate, you know, with people being cruel and there still are cruel people out there. And my mom was a single mom and so she had to go to work every day and she, ha she couldn't lose her job and she had to take care of me. And so that was her way of protecting me. And having that weight on your shoulders for so long really affected who I 
appreciated myself to be and affected my relationship with my mom until I got to the other side of it and realized she was doing this to protect herself, to protect me, to keep me safe. And it's okay. She was doing the best she could, but did have a ton of emotional baggage with it where I couldn't even tell people I was dating about who I was. And it it took a very long time to get to the point where I was like, this is who I am and I am accepting it. And if you don't accept who I am and who, what the decisions that my mom made for her and for me, because she wanted to hit up a family, then you don't deserve to be in my life. And I think it takes a certain level of emotional intelligence and maturity and strength to get there. But I knew my whole life that, that I couldn't, that I was artificially inseminated and couldn't tell people because it may or may not hurt our family. Also, can we just say that back in the era when all of these children were conceived, it was actually very dangerous for a single woman to go through this procedure. Most doctors would not allow for it to happen. They would outright reject you. And so like uh, their moms were really revolutionary for what they did and the risks that all of them took to have kids. I mean, I know it's so normal today, but 35, 40 years ago, this was not normal. And this they was didn't have not AIDS testing back then either. AIDS testing was not a thing. And then my mom said she felt so humiliated having to go to the health clinic to get tested because this was part of the pandemic of AIDS was starting or epidemic, whatever. And so she was like, I was pregnant. I was single. I was in this doctor's office. They're testing me for AIDS. Just, it was scary. I don't know if this is true because my mom exaggerates, but it was illegal in Michigan for doctors to inseminate single women because the concept of a woman having a child without a married partner or a man in the picture was like, oh yeah, we can't have that happening. So what Dr. Taylor was doing was he supposedly was like, oh no, this is like a research or a pilot program. Or he had some way where he went through the university that was attached to his clinic and got around this law or guideline, whatever it was that said women, single women can't be inseminated to do this, which is why it was kind of hard. When my mom heard about Gwen, she was like, what do you mean that this lesbian had a baby? That's not possible. And I was like, no, but you have to go to this guy. It was like an underground insemination path for these women in Ann Arbor in other places, but single women. Yeah, I think it's really powerful hearing everybody's response to this because I think that I really just compartmentalized the change and I didn't even realize how profound it was until like two years later I was like oh yeah you know I knew that there was a chance I had siblings and then later on people would say oh I think I'm gonna get 23 and me for Christmas and I'd be like wait are you emotionally prepared for what you might find and they'd be like oh yeah I just want to find out you find German. And I'd be like, but you might not find that. And I feel like Gwen was saying, I knew who I was. I was an adult. I didn't need anything from anybody. 
But, and if I had found out, if I had found my siblings, if I had looked on and everybody was in jail, I would have felt differently. It would have said something about my genetics that maybe I would have been really upset by. You know, if somebody comes knocking on your door and they're like, hey, we have a cold case and it turns out you're related to the murderer, I would have been rocked in a different way. And the fact that I got to connect with this group of people that are universally awesome and that we share these traits that are, that is not murder is really cool, but it does just, it's like an earthquake that hits your life, your personality, even the people that are close to you in your life. Like my husband was like, oh my, looking at my siblings, he's like, there's more of you. And thinking about this just larger network of people that I'm now connected to it. I don't think that anybody who says they went through that and they were not profoundly affected, whether or not it was a surprise or not, it's, I just don't believe that's possible. It's too much. I have to agree that I am so thankful that I found you guys at this age or a few years younger because yeah, you're already way more established. If I was in my 20s, I don't know how this would have affected me or earlier. I can't even imagine. But Liz, you brought up and I forgot about that feeling of being afraid I'd be related to murderers. I remember very early on, Laura sent me a message, I think in 23andMe, that said something in a really politically correct way that was like, everybody is successful in their own right. And I was like, whoo! <laughs> we know there's no pedophile, so that's great. It's going to be fine. Yeah, it's just like their successes don't necessarily reflect on you. Their failures wouldn't either. But you can't, especially growing up as an only child, if I had found out my blood siblings were all like drug addicts who struggled immensely, it would make me look at definitely my children and say like, hey, we got to, you know, we have to make sure that we're protecting you from something within our genetics that maybe I wasn't susceptible to, but you may be. And instead I'm like, I can just sit back and relax because these genes, they don't quit. You're all bringing up two really important things. One is the, um, how we develop self-awareness and relationship to those around us or how we understand ourselves is rooted within a certain community or a certain family or a certain demographic, whatever that be. And then also what it is to not know aspects of your genetic history, like your susceptibility to disease, et cetera, and to become aware of that. And I would love to just hear from you as you think about the way that this experience has shaped understandings of yourself, everything from, oh, the way I laugh is the way someone else laughs to, oh, actually, like I do have these genetic dispositions or, oh, things you thought might have been nurture, but are actually nature that were incredibly surprising to you. Just curious to hear what comes up. Um, I'll say something about that. So when we finally discovered who the sperm donor was, it was interesting to learn about him. Um, he's deceased, but I was able to speak with one of his relatives who told me a little bit about him. And it sort of filled in some areas, at least for me, where maybe there was like a missing puzzle piece. So I come from a very traditional Middle Eastern household. And I think as all the siblings can tell you, I, I can be a little eccentric. I definitely do not share that with either of my parents. and. 
learning about him and learning like I was told the story of him like where he had a motorcycle and he would drive it down the street standing on the seat like a madman and I was like oh that totally makes sense that's my sperm donor daddy okay I got finally I found something that I can latch on to because I would do crazy shit not I wouldn't do a motorcycle but I do crazy shit all the time I didn't get that from my parents and so I, I think that sort of added some flavor. But at the same time, we also learned some of the medical history that I think is really important for all of the siblings to have known. And frankly, it's disturbing that we didn't know it because it could affect all of us. I'm curious thinking about that. I mean, I certainly know from knowing Gwen that she has a high tolerance for risk, but I'm curious to hear from the rest of you if that's something that you share. I don't know that I would say, so I don't want to jump out of a plane or climb up half dome, but I would frame it for me more as a sense of spontaneity and maybe boldness, or I'm just really not that afraid of failing, which has definitely bitten me in the ass plenty of times because there were times I should have been afraid of failing. So not necessarily like an adrenaline junkie, but more, yeah, I can do that. And I think to a certain extent, we do share that just this not overconfidence, but I feel like security in our own abilities, maybe, or just this, yeah, I'm not afraid to try that. Um, So I don't really know how you'd categorize that, but I definitely don't think that I saw that in my mom growing up. And it was interesting what Sean was saying and Gwen about what the donors was framed as in their families. And I would ask my mom like about my dad. And again, in the 80s, it would throw people off when they're like, who's your dad? I'm like, I don't have a dad. And they're like, that's impossible. And be like, I don't know. What to tell you. I don't know who he is. Yes, I understand the biology, but I can't tell you any more than that. And the way that people would fill in their own ideas about what that meant. Oh, your mom probably got pregnant and was embarrassed. And I was like, that's not what happened. But I'd ask my mom, like, what do you think I get from my dad? And she would say, I don't have big boobs. So probably that and blonde hair. And I'd be like, all right. But that was really the only things that she would commit to that I possibly could have gotten from my dad with blonde hair and big boobs. And I'm shorter than she is. So it was really, and that was it. And everything else, like all the other traits I must have gotten from her. So I really had no idea other than that, she was convinced he was a doctor, this incredibly handsome, blonde, big boobed doctor, just with the most intelligent cream of the crop, because that's what she asked for. And then finding out from everybody else, oh, Dana's mom was like, I want him to be Jewish. And Dr. Taylor was like, you got it, babe. And other people just asking for these things. And they were like, and of course, looking back, I'm like, you guys, this was the 80s. There was no catalog. It was whoever was there and that's fine, but let's just be realistic that there, the illusion of choice was just that you were imagining these things and he was telling you what you wanted to hear because, and frankly, I don't think that if he had said, listen, I have no idea who the donor's going to be. You're going to ovulate. I'm going to have you come in and you're going to get what you get. They probably would have still committed to the plan. 
Like, I don't think it would have changed anybody's mind. It just would have made them have different feelings about the process. So they got to walk away feeling like they got everything that they wanted. And we got to grow up thinking that we have these amazing fathers who were genetic marbles. And that's that. And then finding out it's this guy who stands on a motorcycle who works in the auto industry is like, yeah, no, actually, that makes a lot more sense because here I am thinking I'm not me, not reaching my father's standards as a doctor. And I'm like, no, that tracks. That, that makes more sense. As you're talking and I'm like thinking, too, about what you said, Sean, like this, when you'd like say to people, like, I don't have a dad and they're like, that's not a thing. It was like sci fi. Like it wasn't just, oh, it was like this new way. Like it was like a technological experiment. And so I don't even like, like Kate, you said something earlier about being like, I didn't even think about having a dad. Like I like it wasn't a, it was like not it was like this part of what had made our moms able to have babies. It wasn't like a guy. Yes, he had these characteristics that we could like talk about when we were like, my hands do not look like your hands. But like, it was sci-fi. It was like not a human. And so something that I think a lot about and think about in terms of like common traits is like our mothers were these like crazy righteous people. And even whether or not they were partnered or unpartnered when they chose to have us, all of us had really crazy righteous parents who were willing to like take a risk and do something that was like technologically ahead of the times. And so I had always sort of like attributed that like, all right, cool. Like I'm kind of up for anything. I can roll with whatever to the fact that was the lineage I knew about. And so it has for me been like really interesting to be like, oh, there's this whole other side to things. And like for me, like I found all of you at the same time as like my mom was like passing. And so there was this really interesting like awareness of my maternal lineage and like the loss of that being like, okay, like who am I without a mom? And then being like, whoa, hey, like I also have this whole dad side. And like, who am I with that? And like, how can I choose to be myself in this different way that's like also reflected in all of you, like in these traits that clearly came from him? Dude had to be really funny. We're talking about nature versus nurture. Like he had to be a really funny guy. I'm going to think about this donor with big boobs walking around forever now, Liz. So thank you for that. I also wanted to say I'm thinking a lot about your stories and this idea of needing to hide that you had a donor when you were younger or feeling embarrassed or whatever. And I had some of that for sure, but I was safeguarded to a certain degree by my mom dying because anyone who was willing to then say, well, why are you adopted? And then if I were to say, well, my mom died, to ask that other question, like you had to be really bold to be like, what a push dad. So I think to a certain degree, like that safeguarded me a little bit from having to hide that aspect or feeling embarrassed about that aspect. And then I also had an adoptive father. So that was different for me. I am curious, and this has come through a little bit in what you've all shared, but as you made this discovery about your biological father and about one another, how the other relationships in your life, particularly your familial relationships, the people who actually parented you any siblings that you may have had growing up, how were they impacted or how did this understanding impact the rest of your family system? I interrupted on the floor. I I just want to make sure Sean has the floor if she fit from when I interrupted. I was just going to say, I am like nothing like my mom when it comes to, my mom's very reserved. And so I am completely the opposite. I would jump out of a plane. I would stand on a motorcycle. I love adventure. 
my husband just had the opportunity to move to Germany. I'm like, let's go. He's so apprehensive about it. So that was the only thing I was going to say was that like, I definitely get the thrill seeking from my paternal side. And I don't, to comment on like familial relationships, it was just me and my mom for the most part. She would date here and there. And then she has one sibling, her sister and my cousins, which we don't really talk about um, how I was conceived and brought into this world. They know that my mom's never been married and somehow got pregnant, but I don't, and they probably have found out through social media and things that I posted and about my siblings. So they know of the story, but we just don't talk about it. I wanted to say one more thing too about it. adventure. I feel like adventure is a theme that we're all talking about. And I feel the same way. Uh, living, maybe not just adventure. I feel like all of us strive to live a very full life. And yeah, I think that's a theme throughout. I don't think I'm risky, especially as I get older. Real life is scary enough. But I do think I, I try really hard to live a full life. So I think that my mom... Once it was clear who the donor was, and I think she was very supportive of finding my siblings and just was right there along for the ride and just very excited what was going on. But I think things a little bit shifted for her once the donor was actually found and she realized it wasn't a doctor and that she had been kind of, I don't know if I would say Dr. Taylor lied to her. She would probably say that. I want to put words in her mouth, but she has said she felt a little bit duped. And again, my pushback to that is, would you have said no? And she's no, not. But I think her grappling with that own process of, oh, this visual that I had of who your parentage was growing up. And it's not that. But I think she's been able to come to terms with it. And for the most part, people in my family have been really excited and really accepting. And like I said, my husband and my kids are, they know all about it. And I show them pictures and they're, they just think it's super cool. And I think especially for my kids who are growing up in 2022 and not the 1980s. When I say things like, like my six-year-old will be like, oh, mom was like born in a doctor's office. I'm like, well, not quite, but like conceived. You need a man and a woman to have a baby. And he's, no, you don't. <laughs> you just need a doctor. <laughs> and so their concept of what a family is and how babies are made and who is your relation. And also like having people in your family who are adopted siblings, who are not blood related to you, but that doesn't matter. They're also your family. That's been really interesting to watch and sort of them asking me questions about my siblings and about their children and their families. I think it's been a positive from my side, except for the feelings that my mom has had. But I think she's mostly come to terms with that. Laura, how, I mean, I would love to hear from you how, I mean, I know that it wasn't the same process as most of us to hear this news and, and go to our parents with it. And so I just want to give you space and to share your perspective. Yeah, thanks. It took several months for me to work up the courage to talk to them. So I think I learned about Amlin maybe in March. And then, like I said, it was like just trying to like not make it a thing and then Liz M popped up and I was like oh wait there's more and then I think it was in September 
when I finally did speak with them. And by that point, we had discovered four or five of us. And it, it just felt like a, like the snowball effect. You can't ignore this. And also, I'm a storyteller at heart. So for me, as this is happening, one of the ways that I dealt with it is I was like, this is an incredible story. I have to tell this story. How could I not tell people this story? And so it became like, they're going to find out. I might as well tell them. And so when I sat down with my mom and dad, I said, you know, I just want to tell you some really surprising news. And I said, I have a half sister. I figured I'd start with one, like not just like put everyone on. I was like, I got, I got a half sister. And my mom looked at me and she said, oh. And I just said through a sperm donor. And it was like in that moment, it really felt like watching a veil drop. Like maybe she'd forgotten or something. I, I don't know. And she just said, oh, you know. And I said, yeah, I know. And they did not have much to say about it. I think it was extremely embarrassing for my dad to not be able to have kids, especially within their community. I think it was very, he felt a lot of shame around it. So he didn't have much to say. They Even to this day, they don't really, we never talk about it. They're, my mom is certainly happy to know that everyone exists and that I have siblings, but She's not, they're not inquisitive. They're not particularly interested. Because like, I think from their perspective, they're like, you have a family. Cool. Like, you've got this other thing going on. Great. And we're your parents. And that's the end of the story. So. I think there is this like inherent feeling of like threat. Maybe all of our parents, the people who raised us were. Like we, like for me, I know I contended with that feeling. Like I remember showing my mom a picture of the daughter and being like, see, like he looks so much like me. And she was like, that can't be him, some Jewish doctor. And I was like, okay, I got nothing like that. Like I don't know what you, but like straight in my face. He's got my face. And so, so I do feel like there was like a little bit of a like, no, I'm a single mom. I'm doing this thing. Remember the science experiment. That's what we're going to stick to. And I felt like protective also of like, I was raised with two parents, like, you know, another, uh, and it wasn't called a mom back then, like another parent who was a woman who my mom was with at the time I was conceived. And I had a brother who, like, I was raised with, who was her child from a previous marriage to a man. And I felt, oh, I, I hope that they don't feel like because I'm pursuing these relationships, and I was like pretty jazzed about it, that they feel like they're less than to me now, or like I'm going to cast them aside. And I definitely, like, I had some of those conversations with them. But I was really aware of it. And I think for me as a parent, and Liz, you talked about what it's like for your kids, like my kids are adopted. And my experience as a parent of being like, oh, you have this biological family out there, but like you have this family that's raising you. Like, how do you negotiate like contact versus like you're going to be in the family that you're being raised in? Or like, how do you deal with biological sibling relationships and things like that? Like my mind really opened having had that experience myself and being like, oh, like I don't feel any less a part of the family I was raised by. I just feel like, oh, this is super cool. Like I can know myself a little bit better because I'm meeting all these really awesome people and y'all are fucking awesome. So it's just like nice to like be like, these people are my relatives. Like how fun is that? And I feel like we've all, like many of us have had a chance to get to know each other a little bit and meet and hang out. And like, I'm sure that's going to continue. And so like that for me has been like augmentative to my life as opposed to like taking me out of the other parts of my life. But I think I felt really protective of those parts. 
I would love to have you all share the story of how you actually found who your donor was and whoever wants to share some of the details of that along with, and you just talked about this a little bit, Gwen, but when you first saw his picture and just knowing that when we have a visual for someone, how real it becomes, I would love to have you bring us into that moment. I feel like Laura has to take this one because she was the lead investigator. It was so cool to watch her dig into this and take it on as part of her story. I think, I don't want to speak for you, Laura. I think that this was a really big project that she undertook and it was so fantastic to support her in that, but watch her kind of dig in and seeing the picture with it. It's like, oh, it's Gwen. (laughs) It's a guy, Gwen. Yeah, there was like no doubt in my mind when I saw that picture. I was like, that dude fathered, you can't, genetics aside, like you are the daddy. But Laura, I would love to have you take that one. (laughs) Yeah, I'm happy to talk about it. So we like, we had speculated for gosh, I don't know, two years at that point about who could this be? What was the common feature that we all shared, facial, physical feature we all shared? What was that missing link? And like I said, I'm just like a dog with a bone when it comes to finding, investigating a story. And so I had been clued into a group on Facebook for, there's a whole community, there's probably several communities for people that are called NPE, which stands for not parent expected. And these are places where individuals such as myself who think they have a certain parent and realize they don't can go and get support because it is like very, as you heard earlier, it's very upsetting. And so I joined one of these groups and it was extremely hard to get into the group. I had to be interviewed, but they're very serious, these people. I had to be interviewed by this group that like phone calls or something, Facebook messages. What's your story? Tell us everything. And then they let me in. And then they said, we have another group. They had many groups you can join of sub branches of this. So one of the groups was called an angel group. And it was where and DNA angels are people who are extremely interested in genealogy. And they are, the angels are dedicated to volunteering their time to help individuals discover their biological parents, essentially. So I had to go through an application process to get into the angel group. I got into the angels. Then the angels needed my, they needed so much information from me to move forward with my request. I had to put my DNA all over the internet. So I can, this brilliance can be cloned just if anyone would like it. It's out there for the world. I had to put it on multiple sites. I had to tell them our story. I had to do the best to construct our heritage or lineage as far as we knew, which was very limited, obviously. And then they went into all of those websites that I put my DNA on and they searched and they built our family tree for us. And in that process of building the family tree, which correct me if I'm wrong, I think it took like under a week. They were just on it. They discovered Ross and we could not find him on our own because 
the closest we could find was a second cousin. But by putting my DNA on all these sites, they were actually able to find a first cousin. And that was what enabled them to crack the case, essentially. That's how we learned. That's how we learned about Ross. And I remember the first time I saw a photo, I'm like, I can't be related to that guy. I look nothing like him. And, but Gwen looks like his spitting image. It's just at, and Sean as well. It's really wild. And yeah, so that's what happened. I also wanted to say, like, I feel like there was this simultaneous process of like when Liz Kay was was saying something about as soon as I needed to know, I needed to know everything. There was like this offline that like precipitated that and went on during it, like a constant Nancy Drewing. Okay, let me pull up all the alumni photos from 1975, like the class of 84. Does this guy have our jawline? Okay, that guy totally has our eyes. Let's go check it out. Let's see what's going on. And there was like all these pieces. And I feel like it was just like, it was really interesting to like be on the project with all of you guys. And I think, Laura, you obviously like really brought it home in this amazing way by like finding those folks. And we were like, okay, cool. Like, great. We got there. But it was also just like a fun like process to just be in that with you all and be like, okay, like how much does it matter? Yeah. We looked that at so many generic white guys. That hairman, we had initially thought, oh, this person, because we have really, oh, there's not one, we don't have one nose or, I mean, there are shared characteristics, obviously, but we're like, maybe he's a real generic looking guy and the dominant genetics were pulled from our mom's side. And we're just looking at these people like, maybe they could be the dad. But they were just guys. And then when we got Ross's picture, and similar to Laura, I didn't think he looked like me until I really put our pictures all in a lineup. And I was like, okay, then I can see it. Just like when I look at Gwen and I together and you look at us like right there, you can see that we're related. But it was looking at him and being like, yes, that is a family member of ours, but it was a fun process to go through yearbooks. And I think Liz was digging into and a lot of classmates.com. <laughs> that was fun. What other characteristics do you feel like you all share? I'm just curious, just to go around. I almost wanted to do a little round robin where I just shouted out things like favorite cereal and just had you guys like chime in with those little details. But I'm curious over the past, gosh, what, three, four years now of video chatting. Some of you have met in person. I've been blessed enough to meet some of you in person. What are the things that you've noticed? You're like, oh yeah, this is like common denominator. We talked about risk, riskiness or an appetite for a full life, but what else? I know that at least Gwen and I, maybe everyone else does it too, have a common habit of when we're relaxed and speaking doing this yeah putting your hand over your head thank you i should explain what i'm doing for the audio yeah we have a common feature of putting our hand over our head while we talk and i think gwen realized that we were several of us if not all of us were doing that so that one really comes out i just made a photo montage of it from google from our marco polo chats and everyone (laughs) at one point or another does Anybody else sleep with their hands near their face? I totally unconscious, but a lot of times when I wake up, I'm like smushed up 
and I was born with my hand like right up here too. Like my hand came out first. Sorry, mom. Like I was asking a question. So yeah, I was like born like this. So there is a lot of, but I think we share a sense of humor. I think having, being able to laugh at ourselves and the situations in our lives is very important. Yeah. I think the boldness, the crackling oat brand, I think most of us are coffee drinkers too. I don't, Sean, I don't, are you a coffee drinker, Sean? I can't remember. I am definitely a coffee drinker and I do have my arm over my head quite often and I'm getting up. Yeah. Relaxed on a call. (laughs) I tan really easily, which I didn't get from my parents, my mom. So I think I I really get a sunburn. Usually it'll just be like a deep tan, if anything. So I don't know if we share that, but. I think too about some of the conversations, just like knowing some of the things that each of us have been through in the last however many, four years since we met and connected, some of us longer. And there is like a really remarkable ability to like like I think we all do a little bit of this oh yeah things are hard and then you just make it through but when I actually take a minute to think about what any one of you has been through in the last four years or what I've been through in the last four years in terms of like life changes or turmoil or challenges or like unexpected things that have happened that have been hard it's nobody's everybody's about water in this way that like is really remarkable to me. Like, I don't know that I know four other people in my life or five other people in my life who who could do the same thing. And that to me feels like this really sweet connection, like that paternal lineage into all of you. There's definitely a resiliency in there that we all share. I also, and I don't know if this is a product of starting with, hi, we have the same sperm donor. But I do feel like a lot of us are able to be honest and go to a certain level of depth with others that a lot of other people maybe wouldn't do as quickly as we do. I'm very bad at small talk. I want to know what makes you tick pretty quickly. And I know we're really good at doing that amongst ourselves. Again, maybe because of where we're starting from. But I also feel like that's something that, that we all share more broadly interesting. I remember being struck by reading Ross's obituary and some of the character traits that came out through his obituary that felt like I could really certainly see them in Gwen and see them in all of you as well. And just this piece of being someone who is emotionally intelligent, wants to connect with human beings, is really centered on building relationships. And it seems obvious that's a character strength that has led you all to each other, right? There could have been a reality in which you said, Great. We know who each other are. And now that we know who each other are, it's going to end here and we're not actually going to stay connected for all this time and go as deep um, as we have. And I'm wondering, does that feel like a surprise to any of you to find yourselves here X amount of years later doing a podcast episode together, being in conversation together? Like, did you, in your wildest dreams, did you expect to have an actual relationship with your unknown biological siblings? I never thought about that, but I think that we do share probably like a spiritual connection or an open to this deeper meaning in different ways. I think for all of us, and Sean touched on it earlier, that she really felt like this was where God had put her. And I do feel like there are things that have happened amongst this group where I'm like, yeah, there's just, there is a thread that I can't quite explain. 
you know, I'm in Liz's baby book from her bio mom. And there's a picture of us like holding hands as infants. And Katie McKee was a friend of mine growing up and I was obsessed with her for some unknown reason. I just always felt extremely connected to this other person to the point where I tracked her down after high school and we lived together and she was a bridesmaid in my wedding. And then come to find out she's my sister. And I was like, yeah, duh. Uh, I knew that from like day one. Now it's just official. And meeting Laura and re-meeting Gwen and Sean and just, I, I think it is surprising, but it's also not surprising that we're still talking because I think, I don't know, there's just something there. And I don't know how each of us would describe that, but I do think that it's, hard for me personally to deny that it feels like it was always meant to come out or these people were always meant to cross paths with me and I'm learning from them and we share these things. And yeah, it does feel like there was some fate, I guess, designed in that process. I'll say that we are, we're only half of the siblings on this call. And so like, I totally agree with what Liz is saying. And I think the reason why the group of people on this call um, have gotten close to one another is because like we've wanted to we've put in the work of building friendships with one another and camaraderie and joking around i will say one thing really cool about this group is we don't judge anyone else for participating more or less it's totally cool that's okay nope i don't think anyone harbors bad feelings for that we're all just pretty understanding i was struck by that when we found russ and all hopped on that Zoom call. And ostensibly, we were in a space like all hearing that our dad had died. You know what I mean? We found him and found out that he was no longer alive at the same moment. And just the a level of like respect that everyone had for everyone else's process in that moment. Hey, like here's where and like really honest, here's where I am. I totally can imagine that you might not be in the same place and that's okay. Here's how I want to proceed. How do you need to breathe? How can we all protect each other in the context of wanting to make sure that everybody gets to experience this and process this in whatever way they need to? Like that to me stood out so significantly as like almost like emblematic of like what I appreciate about the connection that we seem to share is like that what you're talking about, Laura, of like, do you? Like, I totally respect that. And I'm like here and moping and I might not always be. And I know that you'll be cool with that too. I just wanted to say, like, I never expected in my wildest dreams to have such in-depth, strong relationships with my potential half-siblings. And so that is super surprising, but also really fulfilling. And... I am grateful for the experience now that I'm on the other side of it, going through it as like teenage years and in your 20s and you're trying to figure out who you are and all of that was hard. But now I'm just so grateful and appreciative. And as Masberg was saying, like there was definitely divine intervention to all of this. And it's just super cool. I love you guys. I do feel like I want to mention that Gwen was saying we all processed finding out who Ross was and that he was dead. That hit me hard personally, finding out that he was dead like that shook me for a while. But knowing that there are siblings that do not know about us that were raised by Ross. Um, and I, I 
did say earlier that I don't believe that's going to stay secret forever. But we as a group did discuss what do we do with this information? Their mom, I don't want to get too into detail. But they, it was, we're trying to be respectful of the boundaries that their family has. And even though I'm really curious to find out more information, we as a group decided that obviously there's no rules where we can't control each other's behavior and actions. And some of us feel more strongly about um, having them included and others feel like it's not our place, but we all have respected that boundary. And nobody has broken the seal on that, even though it feels like, hey, it's out there. So it's floating around, but none of us have gone forward with trying to establish that. And I think that says a lot about us as well, that even though we may land differently on what we think the outcome is going to be, that we as a group, we're like, yeah, we're going to respect that boundary. We're going to let that play out the way that it's supposed to play out naturally. So in our last minute here, let's take a minute and look at each other. And I just am curious, looking at each other today, what would you say that your siblings mean to you? Just popcorn style. This is my sisterhood. Yeah, you guys are my family that I never knew I had. Camaraderie. And people who I think innately understand me. It's a safe landing. It's a safe space. It's, yeah, it's family. I feel like I trust all of you and feel like you can trust me. I feel like there's nothing I could say to this group that they wouldn't be in my corner and wouldn't support me. And even if it was dumb, Laura's, I have bail money. <laughs> and that's really nice. And I will investigate the shit out of that case if I think you've been wrongly accused of something. The United States government has no idea what they're missing out on by not capturing this group of individuals and our powers. I think they're too, lost. like the what we have recorded on Marco Polo, we have to trust each other. There's some real trust there given the things we've told each other and that they're on record. Um, I am totally teary-eyed. I was even getting teary-eyed before doing this interview, just thinking about you all. So I'm so grateful. That's it for today's episode of First Person Plural. There are millions of people out there and a similar situation to these siblings. This story raises a question for all of us. How important is it to know where and who we come from, what's nature, what's nurture, and what are the, all the ways that we build self-awareness across our lifespan. If you want to hear more about this story, I recommend picking up a copy of Gwen's book, Immaculate Misconception, due to come out in May of 2023. You can find the link for that in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in. Ooh, that's it from us. Special thanks to our guests, The Sister Act. Gwen Bass, Sean Kalbus, Laura Khalil, Elizabeth Caselitz, Elizabeth Messberg, and Katie Silver. 
Be sure to check out our show notes for a transcript of today's show and more about Gwen Bass's book, Immaculate Misconception. You can find those notes on our website, firstpersonplural.com. That's firstpersonplural.com. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Keystep Media. Elizabeth Solomon hosted today's episode. Bryant Johnson is our artist in residence. Zarina Carden does marketing. Our music is by Goats Beats. And I am Carrie Seed. This podcast is sponsored by Keystep Media, your source for personal and professional development materials focused on mindfulness, leadership, and emotional intelligence. Take care and we'll talk soon. today's episode, please rate our show and submit a review. It helps us spread the word about the show. If you want to go the extra mile to support our show, you can become a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can get exclusive access to extended interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Sign up at patreon.com slash firstpersonplural.